0: I reconnected uh, recently with one of my one of my first uh, childhood friends. I think we met at age five. Uh, Mark was uh, lived kitty corner across the street from me. Uh, we kind of you know grew apart in high school, lost connection, and then I made a trip after high school to visit him in um, in Canada where he had immigrated, and then we disconnected again for the next 40 years. Uh, Mark found me on Facebook. Um, he said it was very hard to find someone named Ken Wilson (laughs) and he'd he'd actually been trying for years to connect with me and and he happened to intersect with me just after I'd published a letter to my congregation now uh, Mark is like, he's a non-practicing Jew an atheist and spiritually curious Um, so we actually met uh, in person a few months ago when I was on sabbatical and he's, he's taken to call me Pastor Kenny. It's my new nickname. I was known as Kenny back then. It's a charming nickname. None of you are allowed to use it. Um, and, he's like, and he's like, he's treating me like I'm his pastor. And he even started writing pastoral letters to me that he published on his Facebook page and his blog, you know, after I wrote my letter to my congregation. So we're having this semi-public dialogue, Mark and I. He goes, Pastor Kenny... If Jesus is not the answer, what's the answer? I had never, I had never been asked that question before. And I, and I thought to my, I said, connections. It's kind of a sneaky answer since Jesus is kind of the God of connections, you know. But I said, connections. Um, and he wrote me recently, this happened on sabbatical, he wrote me recently in another of his pastoral letters uh, to me to say how this has been haunting him ever since, this whole concept of connections and how it applies in his own life. So actually, I got his address and I sent him a wire to connect, the book that we're using as the science side of this science Bible series on connections. So the the book is about um, the four brain systems that uh, aid our ability to connect with others in a positive way. These are systems that often get weakened in us, when we're, like in modern society, when we have much less in terms of uh, percentage of our time spent in meaningful personal connections, we're more isolated than our forefathers and mothers were. Um, And this affects our ability to have positive connections with the people who are part of our lives. So the four systems are the calming system that helps us relax around others and kind of receive them in a state of relaxation. Uh, The acceptance system which gives us a feeling of belonging in safe relationships and signals something very close to physical pain when we experience rejection or exclusion. This is the system that reminds us how important it is for us to be part of groups. Uh, The resonance system, which helps us mirror the emotions of others so we can connect at that deeper level with one another, empathetically, and then our focus today, the uh, final of these four systems, is the energetic system. This is the uh, boost of dopamine that we get, uh, the, pleasure, the brain's pleasure drug when we are connecting with other people. This word uh, dopamine should probably get our attention um, because we know that addictions are driven by the brain's craving for dopamine. That if we're addicted to, you know, social media, or unhealthy sexual stimulation, or cocaine, or nicotine, or alcohol, or shopping, and the rest, it's because our dopamine system rewards us each time we partake in that activity. We get a little, just a little bit of burst of lift, pleasure. So the the dopamine system evolved to reinforce our people connections. Um, Which were so necessary for our survival of course, you know the modern world is much less communal than that And so our personal connections are weaker and this is one theory for why there's like a rise in addictions in the modern world It's because dopamine that lift we get is so important to our brains our brains crave that so much That if we don't get it from our people contact, we will find it elsewhere um, it's actually no accident that Alcoholics Anonymous because is, a, is a fellowship. and It works because it's a fellowship. It's all about restoring connections that are meaningful with other people and the connections in our lives that have been degraded by our addictions. So, Dopamine is that neurotransmitter that mediates the feeling you get from someone you like who likes you back. That's like the simplest way to say it. We get a lift when we're with people who like us and we like them back. I saw, I stole a glance over there at Emily and I saw her stealing a glance at Rachel. And yes, they're like awash in dopamine. So if, if your Facebook uh, post gets a like, the lift you feel is dopamine. It's the thing that keeps you posting cute things about your kids and pictures of your dogs and cats. And it's an energizing feeling. It's why you post something and then go back to Facebook to see if the (laughs) likes are accumulating or not. You're getting a little ping in your brain called dopamine. So when you like someone and they like you back, you get a lift, you get energized being around them. You even get energized thinking about that person. Even a smile from a stranger can give you a little hit of dopamine. So, faith came to me when I was uh, about 19 years old when I fell in like with Jesus. I fell in like with Jesus long before I fell in love with Jesus or had any understanding of what it meant that Jesus died for my sins and none of that stuff, the theological stuff like that, was actually very interesting to me or compelling to me. Uh, I was in a dopamine drought at this time of my life. I had moved from my hometown in Detroit uh, to the University of Michigan. I had left, disrupted all relationships with family and friends. You know, you, 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 it was a long-distance call to call home. I wasn't really interested in calling home anyway. Um, and I had left under the cloud of teen pregnancy. It was like this big deal, especially back then. Uh, so I was a younger young man in married student housing. Uh, so all of my peers were older than me in different circumstances. And I ended up being one of three guys in a very large nursing school class at the University of Michigan. And my wife was battling postpartum depression. So my dopamine wasn't getting, getting much action. And I started reading the Gospels for the first time. And the Jesus I met there was someone I liked, I liked him. And he was so like intriguing to me and I could actually imagine him liking me. And that got something going in my brain. So there's, there's a tax collector in the uh, gospels named Zacchaeus. I think he's, is he only in the gospel of Luke? I think so. Tax collector named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, who got a similar dopamine hit from his first encounter with Jesus. Uh, But the story of Zacchaeus actually begins in Luke 18, the previous chapter, when Jesus encounters a blind beggar Um, So let's start there, and I want to acknowledge the Middle Eastern scholar that uh, Emily and I just uh, love. This this guy's name is Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for, I think, 40 years and lived in villages and really got a feel for that culture as well as being a, a scholar of Aramaic and the New Testament. So Luke 18, as he approached Jericho, note this is on the outskirts of the city of Jericho where our action with Zacchaeus takes place, A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the messianic title, Jesus, son of David. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still. So he's moving. There's all this momentum towards you. I love it. You know, Jesus stood still. Mm. He got everyone's attention. It's a dramatic moment. And he ordered the man to be brought to him by the crowd. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The man said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, praise God. So the the scene here in cultural context in the Middle East is that when an important figure uh, is coming to town, the leading citizens of the town that were about to be visited by this leading figure would go out as a group to greet the important person and kind of escort him back into their town. Kind of like, you know, the, the uh, Super Bowl winning team comes to the airport and all the people go out to the airport and greet them there and then they kind of come into the, into the city as is, you know, not going to happen this year once again. Um, already, um, the servants back in Jericho are probably servants of, of one of the leader, you know, leaders with a big home and plenty of resources are preparing a feast, a banquet, in the hopes that the honored guest would stay for dinner and the night, which would you know, elevate the status of uh, the prestige of that, of that town. So the crowd around the blind, blind beggar on the outskirts of Jericho, outside the city limits, would have been this welcoming committee of the leading citizens of Jericho, the respectable people, the successful people of Jericho. This upscale crowd is the crowd that shushed the beggar when he had the nerve to call out to Jesus. It says, they sternly ordered him to shut up. The Greek for be be quiet, really, more literally, would be shut up. Hearing this, Jesus stood still, And ordered. You could say he sternly ordered them to bring the beggar to him. So he's rebuking the crowd, and he's giving the beggar what the crowd wanted, which was focused attention from Jesus, the messianic figure coming into town. The most important visitor has been there, perhaps in their lifetimes. So you can imagine, being the beggar, your dopamine is lighting up, right? I mean, you're just getting a flood of dopamine when this thing happens and the upscale crowd not so much they're getting a little dopamine deprived at this point what's going on of course is Jesus is fulfilling the uh, Ecclesiastes 4 vision again I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun look the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors there was power with no one to comfort them. So Jesus is coming as the comfort of God for the oppressed. Jesus asked the man, what do you want me to do for you? Which seems very odd to our ears. It's like, hello, I'm blind. You're a healer. Uh, (laughs) I would like you to heal my blindness. But it's not as simple as that. Because um, in Israel, as in many places like this, even today, begging was like a kind of profession. It it was a way that people could actually make a decent living, but there were requirements to be a legitimate beggar. You had to have a serious and a visible physical handicap. So a a sore lower back wouldn't do it, or, or something invisible like fibromyalgia wouldn't do it. You had to have a missing limb. Certainly blindness qualified you for this role in the society. As a beggar, and it was a role that was, it'd be a little too much to say it had respect in the society, but it played a positive function in the social fabric because um, the people of Israel were under injunction from the God of Israel to give alms to beggars. And so giving alms to beggars was a way to fulfill your duty as a pious Jew. And so the beggars viewed themselves as, well, we're here to help you fulfill your pious duty as a Jew. So the beggars would say, give to God. They wouldn't say, give to me, give to God. This is your chance to exercise your, your um Responsibility as a pious Jew, and then when the alms giver would give them some money, the beggar, if they could stand up, would would kind of make a scene, and then just flood the person with a just a string of blessings in the in the in the name of the God of Israel. And in that culture, that would be like you'd lo- you'd like that to be happening. You'd like to be noticed that you were fulfilling your duty as a pious Jew. So it was like a win-win uh, for the people of Israel. to... Um, Kenneth Bailey says that he, he knew some doctors in, in Bangladesh who would go to beggars in the street, and they were surgeons, and they offered to uh, correct the, the uh, problem that the beggar was having that caused him to beg with just some simple surgeries and to pay for everything, and the beggars refused because it meant losing their the only job they'd ever known. And so um, it did take faith for the, for the um, beggar to say I want to be able to see again because there was a risk involved and the risk was he would lose the only job perhaps that he had ever known and we can only imagine that that dopamine burst that sense of wow Jesus is paying attention to me and it's happening in this circumstances where, where I'm being lifted up and honored among these people who have been dishonoring me that dopamine burst kind of gave him what he needed to take that risk that act of faith so now we're ready for Zacchaeus. This is the setup for Zacchaeus. So it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. He wanted to like, move on to Jerusalem, 17 miles away. He had, he had things to do. He was on the move toward Jerusalem for the, final, for the final conflict. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, since he was short in stature. Now a lot of our Sunday school songs, you know, little Zacchaeus, the little man. They treat him like he's some little, little cute little guy, but he was like, he was more like a mobster, you know. He was running a collection agency in collaboration with Rome, he was feared. Um, but he could not since he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. A sycamore tree would be like a larger fig tree that is easy to climb. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. They're having like a dopamine exchange moment all who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man that came to seek and to save The lost. So again though he was rich Zacchaeus didn't join that crowd that went outside the city gates to welcome Jesus because as a tax collector he's nervous around crowds. Remember what's going on right now in the story is that Jesus is on route to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Passover was the Jewish celebration of the deliverance from Egypt. So it was a political feast about throwing off the yoke of occupation. And everyone knew what was going on. There was was fame preceding Jesus. And there there was political excitement around Jesus. He was a messianic figure. This is indicated by the beggar who called him son of David. A messianic title. Everyone hoped... That he was there to lead an army to overthrow the occupation force. And this would all come to a head in Jerusalem. So with this rebellion against Rome in the air, Roman collaborators, and that's what a tax collector was, a Roman collaborator. The Roman collaborators were laying low in that context. They were watching their backs. They were avoiding politically agitated crowds. It's like someone with a you know, Black Lives Matter pin might not feel so good in certain political rallies today. You know, you've got to watch your back. This is what's going on with a tax collector. It was just too easy in a crowd like that with all this going on to quietly slip a knife in your back if you were a Roman collaborator, if you were a traitor, if you were a tax collector. So how did Jesus know that this man in the tree's name was Zacchaeus and that he had a house to be invited to. Well, probably the agitated crowd saw him just like Jesus saw him and was pointing out to Jesus with accusatory language about this this traitor in their midst. What was he going to do about it since he was coming to right the wrongs that were visited on Israel through these collaborators as much as anything else. Note the text says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So he had no no intention of staying for that customary feast that was likely being prepared for the, you know, big shot visitor coming to town. He was planning to, you know, just pass through 17 more miles to Jerusalem. He could make that in a day's journey. But at the sight of Zacchaeus, there's a change of plans, right? Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today, Jesus says to Zacchaeus. Jesus is relating to Zacchaeus like he's excited to see a long-lost friend. It's like, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, Zacchaeus is getting flooded with dopamine, don't you know, at this moment. I mean, this, everyone wants the attention of this guy, and this guy points him out, In this honoring way. I've got to see you. I've got to spend the evening with you today. Zacchaeus, hurry up. I I can't wait to spend some time with you. So it says Zacchaeus hurried down. And was happy to welcome him. It's like boom. The dopamine is just firing. The angry crowd though. Not so much. He's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. I can't believe it. So again, this burst of dopamine seems to flip a faith switch in Zacchaeus. I think the account is probably compressed here as would often happen in the Gospels. It was probably during the meal that Zacchaeus went and readied for Jesus. And then these meals would have been held out in the courtyard of your large estate. And there'd be low, uh, like stone walls. And people could be on the other side of the walls. And they'd be listening in. And it would be like a semi-public feast. And, and the, the leading guest would be asked questions and would be responding and giving answers. And it'd be kind of like a, a semi-public thing going on. And in the midst of that, most likely it is that Zacchaeus stands up and he says, if I've defrauded Anyone here, which he has, he's defrauded everyone there. If I have defrauded, I like the use of the word if, you know, he's, he's holding on to a little shred of, you know, the if and the apology is usually, if I have offended anyone, yeah. no, but, but if I've defrauded anyone here, I will make fourfold reparations. And he said that knowing that this crowd would hold him to that. So, this is a beautiful moment in the Gospels. This unexpected connection with Jesus has inspired this guy to take a step that will reconnect him to his community. In in the 12 steps uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is step 8 and 9, right? Steps 8 and 9. Step 8 says, I made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Like it's a process to get to this point. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, it's it's interesting that in the 12 steps, there's not a step for apology. Because, you know, the wisdom of... AA is that, you know, everyone knows if you're addicted or you're an alcoholic and gotten to the point where you're ready to go to meetings, you've probably burned some, through some relationships and, and apo- you've probably tried the apologies and I'm so sorry and, you know, and with the complaining spouse and all that kind of stuff. So the, the apologies, after a while, don't cut it. It's the amends that makes the difference. Amends are different than apology, right? So during World War II, uh, Japanese Americans, citizens of the United States, were herded into detention camps uh, along uh, the California border there uh, for the duration of the war, because there, there was this fear that because they were Japanese Americans, they could be like a fifth column within. After they were released at the end of the war, no formal apology, that came 40 years later, I think it was, 35, 40 years later in the late 1970s. But the US Congress, in addition to offering an apology, also offered some financial redress. So $20,000 was given to every citizen who had been illegally detained. It was a gesture, at least, of redress. You know, I think the fact that virtually no amends have been made for the national crimes of slavery or the destruction of native population. I mean that's, that's an indication of why we have such such a gaping wound in our national soul while this division is so it just, it's, it's just there festering. We haven't worked the steps. Uh, justice and reconciliation require steps eight and nine making amends. That's why this is such a big deal in our society. So, when the amends take place, that's when Jesus is finally happy. And he says, like, to everyone around in that semi-public feast with people in the audience, today, salvation has come to this house because he, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So this is what his salvation looks like. It's it's what we're called to when we're called to the path of salvation. But I want to go back to the moment that the process began, that led to this. And that's the moment um, when Zacchaeus, remember he's surrounded by this hostile to him crowd he scrambles up the sycamore tree and he's called out by the son of David who was eager to be with him and who treated him like a long-lost friend who was happy to see him so what if we are all Zacchaeus in one way or another what if Zacchaeus is us What if, you know, secretly we all live with that fear of others turning on us if they only knew what we knew about ourselves? Uh, If the things that we're like harboring in private, the knowledge of the things that we do that we're ashamed of, if that knowledge could just be given to the people around us, wouldn't it just turn them as a crowd? They would turn on us. And there would be a chorus of accusations coming from them our way, even if that chorus is now only inside our heads. And so what do we do? We scramble up our trees and we you know, keep a safe distance from the people around us. What if we are all like Zacchaeus in one way or another? I mean, I think we are. What if Jesus or the God that Jesus reveals is someone who spots us in that condition and without explanation regards us as a long-lost friend that he is so happy to see and he wants to spend some time with us just to enjoy our company i mean this was the agenda of jesus right It, it, it wasn't like i want to come to your house and you know beat some sense into that stupid brain of yours and get you to change your ways, it was, Zacchaeus, hurry up, come down that tree. I want to spend time with you today. I, I think he is. This, is. this text is saying this is who God is in relation to us. This is who God is in relation to us. We need to put that into our pipes and smoke it. You know we have to like let that into our understanding of who God is and then, what if we could be that friend to other people that Zacchaeus found in Jesus? What if we could flip it and we could be Jesus, we could be that friend that Zacchaeus found in Jesus to other people. Uh, What if we could be the one who ignores the the chorus of accusations that any one of us could be subject to and says to the nervous people in hiding, you look like someone um, that would be worth getting to know better. I would like to spend some time with you. I think we can. This is what our task is. This is certainly an individual task. And this is the task of our church, is to be that kind of friend. So um, for our time of quiet reflection, I just finished the sermon in case you were wondering. Um, I'd like to take, like we normally do, a minute or two uh, to just let some of this sink in a little bit. And what I'm recommending is that um, you would, during this time do a little kind of meditation a little reflection in which you identify with Zacchaeus at that moment up in that tree at the very moment that Jesus uh, notices him and says hurry down from that tree I want to spend some time with you And who is Zacchaeus at that moment well Zacchaeus is a guy who had treated the dopamine hit of personal connections for the dopamine hit of something else in this, his case it was ill-gotten gain um, and we can all perhaps identify with him in that, though, that something else may differ for us but rather than seek our dopamine in our personal connections and, and that takes work sometimes, it takes tending relationships, it takes working through rough spots in relationships, it takes reaching out again and again, it takes moving to a new town where you don't know anyone, and it feels like you have to start all over again, building your relational network, and it can be discouraging easily, and it's hard. When we're in that state, we often go for our own version of something else. Some habit that isolates us, but rewards us with that little hit of dopamine. What I want to do is suggest that you bring uh, that knowledge of your Zacchaeus self to this time of personal reflection. I'm going to read the text over twice, a little bit slowly. And while I do that, just picture yourself in that tree with Zacchaeus when Jesus comes by. And only this time he's calling both of your names. So if you're game for this, you can just close your eyes, get comfortable, maybe take a deep, relaxing breath to start. Let me read this text. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Again, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All right, I'd like to invite the ushers to come up and prepare for the offering.